Welcome to this week's Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Kendall Kearns, and I'm the student worship leader here at Rolling Hills. We're spending this week in Mark chapter 15 as we approach our finale of our Masterclass series. In this chapter, we read about Jesus' last moments before his death, including his conversation with Pontius Pilate, his crucifixion, and his last words on the cross. But in what seemed like defeat, Jesus achieved victory for all of us. He made a way to the kingdom of God. Join us today as we discuss the work Jesus finished through his sacrifice for us. Thanks for listening. With our friends, there are stories that seem to come up when we're around each other all the time. You know, if you're at Thanksgiving or Christmas, you you know the stories that we pass around when we sit around the table, the stories that... Uh, Some of us want to forget. Some of us wish that they wouldn't get told anymore. Maybe they are annoying to you, Uh, especially if the story is about you. There's one story that floats around my family around every Thanksgiving uh, that I was hoping would have stayed at the kids' table like 30-some-odd years ago, and yet it didn't. And it uh, continues to be brought up uh, every year just as another example of my mental prowess and, and it's just one of, it's one of those stories, right? You, you, you know the stories that I'm talking about. You know the stories that happen when you're gathered around the table and, and you share that meal together. And today, again, as you came in, we're, we're going to share communion together and as, the, as we gather around the Lord's Supper table this morning. So if you didn't grab that on your way in, I'd invite you to grab that. But that's the table that, that we share those stories together. We also know that there's not just those stories that we share among family, there's those big epic stories. The big stories that, gen- that shape generations, shape stories that are common for a whole group of people that, that are my story and they're your story because they're our story because they happened at this one moment in time and it's, it was big enough that it, it, it affected a lot of people. It's those stories that, that many of us know that, that you'll, you know where you were when that happened or when you Heard, heard the news about whatever it was. I remember where I was sitting when I saw the second plane fly into the towers in 9-11. Many of you do. Some of you weren't born yet, and that means I'm really old. But for those things, you, you know where you were. Those big, epic stories. But among all of those stories, the ones that we pass down as family and the big epic stories that are part of textbooks and history books or textbooks and, and, and the stories that are told in classrooms and taught to students, there's one story that really stands heads and shoulders above them all. And it's the story that we're going to explore today, the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, the cross and the empty tomb. And this week we'll focus on the cross. Next week we'll focus on the resurrection or the empty tomb. And really for what, what this morning, for the rest of our time together to focus on the cross, to, to really look at this monumental moment that happened in history and to take from it a couple of lessons. And if you have your worship guide, four lessons that I, that I think are, are clear for us among the many other lessons that are there in this story of the cross Author Tony Ranke says this, that to the redeemed eyes, to those who have trusted Christ and their lives have been transformed by his goodness, to the redeemed eyes, the cross is a spectacle that this world has never and will never rival in weight or significance or glory. 
Theologian John Murray says this about the cross of Jesus. He says, it is the most solemn spectacle in all of history, a spectacle that is unparalleled, unique, unrepeated, and unrepeatable. And among all the extremely important things that could have our attention this morning, all the stories that, are, that, that, that could have our attention, that fight for our attention every minute of every day you know, from whatever social media outlet or news coverage, that all of the things that are breaking news stories, there's one story that truly should capture our hearts. And I pray that this morning as we fix our eyes on him that we would hear these simple lessons from the cross. But before we do that, I want to ask you to pray with me. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the way maker. That you made a way for us as sinners to have a relationship with you and it was through the cross. We thank you for the blood that was poured out. That in that blood being shed, you made a way for us. You rescued sinners. You brought salvation for those who were desperate and in need. And on the cross, Father, you came and you finished, Jesus, you finished the work that you came to do. God, I pray that our hearts and our minds and our eyes, that every bit of us would be totally wrapped up in the goodness and the greatness and the glory that is the cross. And that it would affect us not only in this moment, God, but God, that it would transform us as we take the application of what the cross means for us as we leave here this morning. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen. So there's four things, four lessons that I want us to see from the cross from Mark chapter 15 as you see that Jesus was, was delivered to Pilate and Pilate asked, why, why am I going to, why would you punish this man? And they, they, they asked for, for Barabbas to be released and they crucified Jesus and it, the whole story there and all those hours, it just took such a short time. It all goes dark and Jesus cries out, takes his last breath, the curtain is torn. And they bring him to a tomb. What are the lessons that we hear from Mark chapter 15? The first lesson that I want us to see in the cross of Christ is that the cross reminds us that death was required for victory. It reminds us that death was required for victory. We've pointed a couple of times throughout this series as, as I've preached through this that, that the, the kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish is an upside down kingdom. We've talked about it multiple times in, in, in Mark's gospel as he kind of, some of the things that he says. But that upside down kingdom is not just Mark's gospel. It's not just in Mark's gospel. You see it in Matthew and Luke and John's gospel accounts as well. And the Sermon on the Mount in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 5 verses, or chapters, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus explains what life in the kingdom truly looks like. And he says, life in the kingdom, those who are blessed, those who are joyful in the kingdom, live upside down lives. Their lives look upside down in comparison to the world and to our culture. Jesus says this about the blessed in the kingdom. He says that they will be poor in spirit, mourners. They will be meek and merciful, pure in heart and peacemakers. I mean, to our world, that doesn't sound like the joyful. That doesn't sound like the blessed life. But what Jesus says is that in his kingdom, this is the blessed life. Because those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, will know God. 
Those who, are, those who are hurting will see God. Those who are merciful will receive mercy. That those are the ones who are the blessed ones because the life in the kingdom of God is an upside-down life. It's an upside-down kingdom. Jesus continues to elaborate on that. And, and, and Matthew, later in Matthew, he tells us, he declares that, that the least will be the greatest. Another upside-down picture of what life is like in the kingdom. He says in Matthew chapter 16 that to gain your life, you will lose it. All these examples of what it means that in the kingdom of God, it's going to be an upside-down kingdom. He, he pictures, he puts on display this upside-down kingdom in John chapter 13 when the master, the, the teacher, the Messiah washes the dirty feet of his students, his disciples. And he tells them to follow his example because it's an upside-down kingdom. I mean, and in this passage, in Mark chapter 15, the upside-down kingdom is taken to a whole new level. Because in dying, the king purchases victory. Because in dying, there's winning for this king as he ushers in his kingdom. And think about it, in, in what other kingdom in all of history was death the way that the king ushered in victory? I mean, in every other kingdom, in every other, in every other king, in all of history, if the king were to die, it would equal almost certain defeat of the kingdom. But for Jesus, the way to victory was through his death. His death was, the secure, was what secured the victory for Christ as he laid down his life. And remember, death was the way that, that it, had been, it had been planned from the very beginning. This was the victory march that we had talked about last week. That, that every, this wasn't a surprise. This wasn't in the moment God flipped the script and says, okay, since you took his life, that's going to be the way that we win. It was the, this was the march that he was on from the very beginning. Because death was the way to victory from the very beginning. But the whole march... This all of Jesus' life, especially right here in the end, it looked like the enemy was on a conquest to defeat, the, defeat God's plan. But all of this was God's perfect unfolding plan to bring a crushing defeat over sin and death and the devil. All of it was a part of his plan. And to be a part of this kingdom that, he give, that is an upside-down kingdom, he tells us, that in order to be a part of it, we lay our lives down. That just like the king laid his life down to usher in the kingdom, what he's called us to do is lay our lives down. We heard it just a second ago that he's called us to, to lay down our lives in response. That the first will be greatest to, to find life. We lose our lives. I love this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor that said this. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. Yes, Christ died on the cross, but the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering in which every man must experience is the call to abandon his attachments to this world. It is that dying of the old man which is a result of his encounter with Christ. And we embark upon the discipleship. We surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We will give over our lives to death. Listen. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. It, but it meets us at the very beginning of our communion with Christ. Because when he calls a man, when Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer says, he bids him come and die. 
the call for us that was the same that Christ, the plan for Christ was to lay his life down. And the call for us in this upside down kingdom is to lay our lives down in response to abandon, to abandon our own desires and our flesh. And just rather than trying to, to, in my best explanation, I'll never do as well as what Scripture tells us. And so just listen to these words from Scripture that tell us, these, that tell us to lay down our lives as a response to Christ and his victory on the cross. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, Then he said to them all, this is Jesus, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up his cross daily and follow me. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, he says, whoever does not take up his cross, meaning die to himself and follow me, is not worthy of me. Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this, and in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake or for the gospel will save it. The writer, Paul, the writer of Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. In, in Galatians 5, chapter, 20, or chapter 5, verse 24, it says, those who belong to Christ have, been crucif have crucified the flesh with the passions and its desires. And on and on in Scripture, it tells us that when we are walking with Christ, what we do is abandon our own self. We lay down our lives. We lose our lives to gain the life that Christ came to purchase for us on the cross. The lesson of the cross begins with the reminder that death is required for true victory. It was required for Christ to purchase the victory that we now experience. But in experiencing that victory, it's us laying down our lives and saying, God, you are in control, not me. And that's a daily call. It's a daily call that he says to take up our cross daily and to follow him. So it first reminds us of the death. It reminds us that death is required for true victory. Secondly, the cross displays the greatest love the world has ever known. The cross displays the greatest love the world has ever known. The culture, our culture, movies, social media, so all of these things have great ideas to tell us how do they want to share with us what it means, what it looks like to be in love or to, to love others or to, or to say I love you. I, as I was looking at some things this week, just kind of preparing, I, talk, I typed in different ways to say I love you. And there was this whole list, and I, I thought about because some of them were so goofy, like saying I love you without saying I love you, right? And I thought about sharing some of them with you, but I figured that because they were so dumb that y'all would not stick with me at all. You might leave. Uh, so you can search on your own. There's some really funny ones uh, that, dudes, you should try out on your wives because it may work for y'all. But I know that Rebecca would leave. Uh, she would leave the room if I said those. So. But our, in our culture, it tries to tell us what it looks like to be in love. It tries to tell us what it looks like to, to love somebody. And it's all this emotional things. It's this embrace and this starry-eyed gazing in each other's eyes. It's, this, it's not being able to let go of each other or to say goodbye. It's that embrace or the kiss, the, the passionate kiss. It's all the picture of what our culture tells us. Movies tell us the same thing, and, and they give us these absurd circumstances, what it looks like to, to express love or to show love. And we go through these, it tells us to go through these absurd things and to announce the depth and the unquestionable and unquenchable nature of our love for another. It begins innocently 
even farther back than movies in our culture with the fairy tales that we read. And it continues through romantic comedies and it's exploited far beyond that. And we're drawn to these things. And guys, before you get mad at me for saying that we're annoyed at that reality, that we're drawn to those stories, the reason why we're drawn to them is because inside of all of those, the fairy tale and the romantic comedy and what culture says is there's a ribbon of truth inside of it. There's a ribbon of truth that's the found of, in a foundational sort of way of, of what it looks like to truly be in love. And Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is truly my favorite, one of my favorite, if not my favorite book in the world, period. And yes, it's a kid's book, which also tells you about my intellectual prowess. Says it this way, she says, the Bible is a love story of a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, and everything to rescue the one he loves. And it's like the most wonderful of all, of all fairy tales and love stories because it is true. See, the cross is true. And it's this life-altering story of the Prince of Peace going to unimaginable lengths to make sure, to make us his own, to, to have our hearts, to just put on display the depth of his unquestionable and unquenchable love for you. It's greater than any fairy tale. It's greater than any romantic comedy because it's true that the Prince of Peace left everything to rescue you and I, to express his love for us by laying his life down on the cross. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of Christ is. What Paul's desire for us, for the writers, for, for who he wrote to in, in Ephesus and for us, is that we would meditate, being rooted and established in that love, that we would meditate, that we would fix our eyes on, meditate until we get a grasp of how great this love is. And we would do well. It would be good for us to let our imaginations run a little bit sometimes. For us to to slow down and meditate and explore and think about this Father's love, our Father's love for us. And there's truly no greater place for us to experience it and to see it more clearly than in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says in, in, in our chapter, in John, or in John chapter 15, he says this, that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. And Paul writes in Romans that God demonstrates his love for us, his great and mighty, his unquenchable love for us. While, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What should grab our attention is this incredible display of love that God has, has, has provided for us in the cross of his son when he laid down his life for us and shed his blood for you and I. It should overwhelm us it, 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 as, we, as we think about it, as we p- see the picture of the cross and the reality of what happens on the cross. 
what our hearts should be captured by this incredible love that is poured out and displayed for us. Because on the cross, we see this love that comes after us, that moves first. I think about that because I, I think about in, in, our, in our homes with our kids, parents, maybe your kids aren't like this, but sometimes my kids are unlovable. But Christ's love moved first, even when we were unlovable. And I'm sure that this is not this way for most of you in your, in your marriages. It's certainly maybe only for Rebecca and ours that sometimes I'm unlovable. But Christ's love moved first when we were unlovable. Maybe it's somebody at your office. Maybe it's somebody in your neighborhood that, that truly is just, they get under your skin and they're unlovable. But what we see in the, in the cross is that the love of Christ moved towards us first when we were unlovable, when we could not earn it on our best day. He moved towards us. And the love that he shared with us is too good to be true. It's far greater, as we've already said, than the fairy tales and the romantic comedies. Because it moved first towards us. And this promise that we find in Romans 8, listen to these words that Paul writes about this love that moved towards us first, that is undeserved and unearned, that is too good to be true. It says this, that who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, shall hardship, listen, shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? Skip to verse 37, it says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love that comes for us when we don't deserve it, when we can't earn it. That is too good to be true. It says that we can never be separated from it. When we've put our faith in him, when you've trusted him for salvation, nothing, it says, nothing can separate. You didn't earn it and you can't unearn it. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones, who, who I quoted a second ago, her phrase about God's love throughout that Jesus Storybook Bible is this, that his love is never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Some of us need to hear that this morning again because I believe that right now we feel unlovable. And I want you to hear what God's, God's there's nothing that can separate you from his love. And it is a never stopping, it is never giving up. Even though you may have given up, God's love has not given up. It's always and forever kind of love. His cross reminds us first that death was required for victory. Secondly, puts on display the greatest love the world has ever known. And third, the cross proclaims that Jesus came to be our savior and to rescue sinners. In sports and in entertainment and academics, when someone is really good at multiple different things, we celebrate them for their, for their talents, right? In, in, in entertainment, it's called the triple threat. 
Uh, I was once called a triple threat. <clears throat> it was for a different reason, though. Uh, it was a joke. It was a stupid joke, too. Uh, but in, in entertainment, like actors who, are, who can sing and dance and, and, and act, they, they can do all these things really well. They're called a triple threat, right? Justin Timberlake is in the list of modern triple threats, right? If you've ever seen him do, although he can, I, I've taught him some things so he can dance pretty well. His voice thing, that was on his own, but. Hugh Jackman is considered a triple threat right now in, in, our, in, in modern people uh, or modern actors and actresses. Uh, some would argue that David Hasselhoff is among the triple threat actors. I'm not arguing that. I'm just telling you that some would. It was literally on a list as I, as I did some research this week. That David, I was like, that, that's wrong, but obviously I'll, I'll add it to the list because it will make somebody laugh. In athletics, when somebody's really good, you can be a triple threat inside of your sport, and that's cute. But what's really cool is when an athlete is really good across different sports. Like the outliers in athletics is when somebody's really good in one, but is also really good at a professional level in, in two at the same time. And there's really, there's no argument about this. It's not a debate. There is only one that is the upper echelon of that, and that's Bo Jackson. And so, like, we know that. And so if you think that there's somebody else, that's, that's totally fine. But he's kind of the, the pinnacle of being the top of that, top of that list. In academics, I'm not really sure what you call it when somebody's good across multiple subjects. In high school, I called them friends because I felt like they could help me um, with grades and such. But you know, when we look at Jesus throughout this series, we've talked about Jesus in multiple places and studying his life and his teaching and his interactions with people that our lives would look more like him. And the reality that we've seen him do incredible things and, and there's different things that he's, he is and all of the, the pictures that we've seen him, he's a great teacher. He's a compassionate friend to many who were considered outcast and on the outside of society. He's a healer of the sick. He's a miracle worker like we just sang about. He's a promise keeper, which we're going to talk about next week. But all of those things, and he was all of those things, but that's not all that he was and that's not all that he did. And the truth is that ultimately, if we, we have to understand that if Jesus had not gone to the cross, honestly, he would have failed. Because we didn't just need another good friend. We didn't just need another good teacher. We didn't need a good doctor. And he was those things. He did miracles and he, did those, he was awesome and incredible that he did those things. But ultimately, what we needed was a Savior. And had he not gone to the cross, honestly, he would have failed. Listen to what it says in Mark from our passage this morning. Verse 33, it begins, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, I'm not going to say that right. I'm somebody who knows this better than I do. Lyam Sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing heard him say this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with wine and vinegar, and they put it on a staff, and they offered it to Jesus to drink. And they said, now leave him alone and let Elijah come and take him. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And a curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, 
Surely this man is the son of God. The cross, Jesus would have failed if he had not gone to the cross. But the, and the cross was not a failure. It was the proof of the success. It was the, it was the proof of the success of what Christ had come to do. This was the very reason he came. When Christ, This is where Christ completed his work as Savior, where he became the way maker, making a way for sinners to be rescued and redeemed and restored. When the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, God was showing all of us that Jesus was opening a way for people to have, to have a relationship with a holy God. And when the centurion confessed there at the, at the foot of the cross that he was the Lord, God was showing us and letting us know that anyone and everyone who would call on his name and trust him, put their faith in him, could have a relationship with him. The cross is the place where Christ accomplished what he came to do. Because above all things, Christ is our Savior. The angels announced it to Joseph when, when he found that Mary was with child. He said, she's going to give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will, be, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter, 3, John chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 says this, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, that they would be saved. Right in verse 17 it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Jesus talking to Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19 said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Paul writing to Timothy says, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving full, of sense, full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Throughout scripture, we see it over and over again. That what Christ did was come to rescue sinners to reconcile those who are lost. And by his blood that was poured out on a cross, those who are alienated him from him far off, that they would be brought near to him, to be reconciled to him. That he canceled the charges that were against us and he nailed them to the cross, that we once were enemies of God and now we're reconciled to him through the death of Christ on the cross. He entered on, on our behalf and poured out his blood and attain, attained for us what we could never obtain on our own, an eternal redemption and salvation for our sins. What Christ did for us was that he saved us. Christ, the cross reminds us that, that death was required for true victory. It displays the greatest love that the world has ever known. It proclaims that Jesus came to be our savior and to rescue sinners. And if the, that reality is what we have to deal with this morning, is the reality that he came to rescue sinners. And that brings us to with this last lesson. The cross brings us all to the defining moment in life that requires a response. And we started today with a quote from the theologian John Murray where he says this, that, the, that this is the most solemn, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the most solemn spectacle in all of history, a spectacle that is unparalleled, unique, unrepeatable, and, or unrepeated and unrepeatable. And we said from, from Tony Reich, he said this, to, to redeemed eyes, to those who have been saved, the, eyes, the, the cross is a spectacle that the world has never seen and will never, will never rival in weight or glory or significance. But Reich continues and he says this, and I want us to listen. He says the cross 
of Christ is the hinge of history. Where all time collides, where all human spectacles meet in one surpassing cosmic divine spectacle. From this moment on, God intended the human gaze to center on this climatic moment of the cross. It's as if God was saying to us, to all of us, that this is my beloved son crucified for you to capture your hearts forever. And depending on how you see it, the cross is either one of two things. It's the mocking of a false king or the coronation of a true king of the universe. The cross was either a tragic misunderstanding or a ruthless murder of an innocent man. A tragic misunderstanding and a ruthless murder of an innocent man. Or the pre-planned event orchestrated by God to display to the world a beauty that is unsurpassed. The cross of Christ is driven home in our conversion when we look back. This is Reinke's last words. When we look back at our lives and we see that it is our sin that stabbed holes and bloodied the body of Christ. When we recognize that it is him whom loves me that I have pierced. The reality for all of us that brings us to the point of decision. It's, it is the climactic moment in all of history but it's a moment that makes that that brings us to a decision a defining moment in all of history that brings us to a defining moment in our lives where we have to where it draws us to a response to recognize that we're sinners in need of a savior that if Jesus would not have gone to the cross if he had not completed the work that he came to do, we would have a good friend and a good teacher, but because he went to the cross, he was our savior. And and if we don't recognize that we're sinners, then all of what Christ did is not ours to possess until we recognize that we are sinners in need of a savior and he is that savior. That it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. The one who loved me was put on the cross, was pierced by my sin, bringing us to response of repentance and faith in him. It's a response that individually we all have to make. It's not a response that somebody else can make for you. And what I've heard in so many conversations that I get to have with people is that phrases like, I've known Jesus all my life. And that may be the case that you've known all about Jesus all your life. But until you come to a place where you recognize your own sin and you respond to Jesus and trusting him with faith, then you don't know Jesus in the way that Jesus came to be known. And so many of us, so many of us live a life that we're so, we're in proximity to Jesus, but we've never been rescued by Jesus. And I'm telling you that on this day, the only one that was standing around around the cross that understood was a Roman centurion, a soldier that was not a part of the Jewish people, but he recognized it. That it was his own sin that nailed that man to the cross. And what God displayed in that moment was that if any of us trusted him, then we could have a relationship with him. It's a question that we all have to to wrestle with. Parents, it's a question that we don't need to act like is one that our kids are just going to wrestle with on their own. 
We need to step into those conversations with our kids. And just because they've made a decision in the past doesn't mean we stop having those conversations with them about what it means to walk in faithfulness and obedience to the cross. Hopefully they see it in our lives. But ongoing, we say it out loud to them. We call them back to make to recognizing the cross. For some of us this morning, we need to be we need to recognize the cross of Christ and have a response on our own. We need to say, I've known all about you, but I've done I don't know who you. I've never put my faith in you. If that's you, if that's where you are, as we close the service today, I'd invite you to come and have a conversation with me about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. I'll be right here in the front. I'll stand up here in the front, and I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you want to to know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, if you've been around church all your life, but you've never made a, a point where you've recognized that it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, and the reason why Jesus came is to be your Savior. And that you need a savior. Then let's have a conversation about what that looks like. I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And just have a time of response on the back side of, of our time together. And as we open up God's word. Won't you bow with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the incredible display of love that is the cross. We thank you that, God, you're, the victory that you purchased for us as you laid down your life on the cross and that you've called us to that same laying down of our lives. You've called us in love and grace, not that we could earn it, you've provided everything for us because you came to be our savior and to rescue us. And Father, I am convinced that in this room today, there are those who are wrestling with the response that, that this moment, that it, it, it is a defining moment in all of history, but it has to be a defining moment in our lives personally, where we put our faith personally in you, where we don't rely on the faith of our parents, where we don't rely on the faith of our grandparents, We don't rely on the faith of our friends, but we put our faith in you as our Savior. We pray that you would move in a mighty way to bring us to that place today. We thank you for the reminder that the cross is for those of us who have put our faith in you. It's in Christ's strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning it's it is a gift to the church to God's church that he gave us this opportunity to be reminded of what he did on the cross that his blood was poured out and his body was broken and it says in in scripture at the night that he was betrayed that he took the as he was sitting with his disciples that he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body that was broken for you he says, take this bread and, and, and eat this in remembrance of me. And so they took the bread and they ate the bread in remembrance of him. And likewise, he said he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. 
He established at the table there with the disciples a new covenant, a new arrangement where previously it was the blood of goats and, and lambs and doves that was shed for, the, for the, the penalty of the sin of the people. But in this moment, he said it's going to be the blood of Christ that would be poured out in a new arrangement, that his blood would be poured out and once and for all that sin would be covered. And he said, every time you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And they took the cup. And we're reminded that it's just a taste foretaste a sweet reminder in this moment of the beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us and as we sing this is a time of response and I'll, I'll be sitting over here in the corner if you want to have a if you want to have a conversation about what it means to have a relationship with Christ know more about what we just did and taking bread and juice then I want you to come and have a conversation with me about that because it would be a it would be a failure for us to leave here without you having that conversation about what it means to take that next step. So let's pray and continue to worship. Jesus, thank you for this morning, for your blood that was shed. Thank you for making a way for us. Father, I pray that you would call us to yourself this morning. listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, we hope you will tell a friend about us and subscribe so you can be notified each time we release a new sermon. Be sure to explore our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, you can download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. See you next time and God bless.